Hi and welcome to the St Saviour's Finsbury Park podcast. Our vision is to be a church alive in God's love to serve the city. And we hope this teaching helps you to know God and serve him more wherever you've been uniquely placed. Let's jump in. Can you hear me okay? Cool, with my fancy Beyonce mic, so very exciting. Um, It is such a pleasure and a privilege to be speaking here this morning. St. Saviour's has been a source of such encouragement to me, speaking words of truth and love over me and my life. So that's just what I want to do this morning. And that's what I think this is. It's an opportunity to speak words of truth and love over you. And I wanted to start by saying a massive warm welcome to Micah and Mason's friends and family. What an amazing morning this has been. Yeah, please applaud. Baptism is so special, and it was an honor to stand with you all as we pledge to support Micah and Mason in whatever life has in store for them. And I know that so many of you have already supported them to this place. So I'm looking forward to meeting more of you over tea and coffee. Um, But before that, we have a talk. (laughs) So this morning, I'm going to be talking us through the story of the road to Emmaus, which comes at the end of Luke's gospel. Luke's account of Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and then ascension into heaven. And this story takes place on Easter Sunday. There are rumors going around Jerusalem of a man who's risen from the dead. But amidst these rumors, two disciples, one of which we know the name of, their name is Cleopas, and one of whom we never know the name of, they leave Jerusalem and walk towards the town of Emmaus, which is maybe six to seven miles away. And the disciples are in a kind of mega process and debriefing mode. The person that they've invested time and energy in, the people they've journeyed with for years, has died. And although this might have been part of Jesus' plan, it was not part of Cleopas' plan. And they're thinking, what does this mean for me? Have we wasted the last few years on a lost cause? They're thinking, what does this mean for who is Jesus? And then amidst this scene and these conversations, they're joined by a figure. And Luke is emphatic that it's Jesus, calling him not just Jesus, but Jesus himself. So Jesus himself joins them. But mysteriously, we're told that the disciples' eyes are kept from recognizing him. But as they journey with him, as Jesus explains the scriptures to them and shares a meal with them, we're told in the breaking of bread, they recognize him. So this raises a question for us, one that we're all confronted with today. How do we recognize Jesus? What does it mean to see Jesus as Jesus truly is? So that's what I want to talk about today. And to do that, I'm looking for a guide. And this is my guide. So this guy's name is called Timothy Ware. In his 20s, Timothy converted to Eastern Orthodoxy and shortly afterwards felt a call towards monastic living. He took vows of lifelong celibacy, poverty, obedience, community, and prayer. And as he did so, he was invited to change his name. Just as in the biblical tradition, many people who are called to specific vocations change their name in recognition of the way that a brand new life, a whole new way of life, um, is the thing that they're invited into. So Timothy changed his name to Callistos, which in Greek means the most beautiful. So this is the most beautiful where? 
But I don't think he's making a comment about himself. Rather, this is a statement about who, who God is for Timothy. Every time Timothy's name is mentioned, they don't call him Timothy anymore. They call him Callistos. He's reminded that it is God who is the most beautiful. And Callistos Ware writes this small pamphlet on a prayer called the Jesus Prayer. And I love this pamphlet. The Jesus Prayer was started in the kind of third or fourth century after Jesus. And men and women from all over North Africa and the Middle East flock to the deserts of Egypt. And there they set up monastic communities as men and women committed to celibacy, poverty, obedience, prayer, and community living. And they sought to explore what would it mean to live life praying constantly. There's a passage in the Gospel of Luke, the same Gospel that our reading is taken from, where a man born blind recognizes Jesus. Jesus is surrounded by people with 20-20 vision, but it is the man born blind that recognizes Jesus. And he cries out, Lord Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the men, the men and women of the desert took this prayer and they prayed it continuous, continuously. The Jesus prayer is a prayer which is, Lord Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. These men and women would pray it constantly as they went through their daily tasks. So Callistos Ware starts his pamphlet with this quote. He's telling a story. He says, once there was an old man who spent several hours each day in church. What are you doing there? His friend exclaimed, which is a poignant question when asked in a church. I'm praying, the old man replied. Praying, the friend exclaimed. There must be a great many things that you want to ask from God. With some indignation, the old man responded, I'm not asking God for anything. What are you doing then? The friend said. And the old man replied, I just sit and look at God, and God sits and looks at me. Which is a beautiful and intimate betrayal of what prayer in some modes can be. But it also begs a question. So I'm assuming that this doesn't just reflect a story that Callistos Ware heard. It reflects something of his own prayer life. So I wonder, when Callistos Ware looked upon the face of God, what did he see? And more than that, when he looked upon the face of God, what did he see looking back? And what did he think that God saw? Reading into the fact that he named himself Callistos, perhaps he saw great beauty. Not the kind of beauty that you seek to entrap and put in a box, but the type of beauty you enter into and build a life around, the divine beauty. I wonder if he also saw something of the love of God, the beating heart of love at the center of the cosmos, without which our hearts stop beating, mountains crumble, and gravity stops working. What would it mean to see that love? What would it mean to look on the face of Jesus and see that? I think the disciples saw something of that love on the road to Emmaus. Reflecting, they say, were our hearts not burning within us when he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And the disciples are emphatic that it is the scriptures which reveal this love to them. Luke, in chapter 24, twice talks about the way that Jesus explains who he is through Moses, the prophets, and later he also says the Psalms. Twice he says all the scriptures. So for Luke, there's Jesus isn't hinted at in just some 
of the scriptures, but all the scriptures point to Jesus. All of the scriptures reveal Jesus as the source of love. It's a climax moment in the scriptures. That is who Jesus is. So that raises the question, what do the Jewish scriptures, which are the things which Luke is referring to, what do they say about who Jesus is and who God is? Now, this is a huge question. Now, the New Testament, the part of the Bible which was originally written in Greek, that's big, and that would be a massive question to tackle in a morning. The Hebrew Bible or the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, is four times the size. (laughs) So I'm taking on a big question, but I just want to survey something. When we look at the Jewish scriptures, we consistently see a fourfold pattern. We see a God who consistently seeks to lead God's people into places of delight. And then before God's people can do anything, God gives them a vocation. Human beings are fragile creatures, and so often they fail to live up to this vocation. And this always introduces a sense of a climax. What will God do with a people who struggle to fulfill their vocation? And the answer the Jewish scriptures give is God always doubles down on them, recommitting with faithfulness to those who don't always show faithfulness to God. And let me just trace this a couple of times. We see it in the first three chapters of the Bible, the book of Genesis. In many ways, the book of Genesis is a summary of the Bible as a whole, as we see the same patterns there repeated again and again and again. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 talks about the fact that God places humanity in Eden. Eden is literally the Hebrew word for delight. It shows that God is the kind of God who delights in our delight. The garden that God places us in isn't just, has uh, trees which are good for food, but also trees which are just good to look at. It's a land flowing with gold and onyx, and it's meant to emphasize the way that God just loves flowing beauty on God's creatures. More than that, God desires intimacy and union with God's creatures. Talks about the way that God walks with God's creatures in the cool of the day, that sense of intimacy between humanity and God. And right at the center of this garden is the tree of life. Now, biblical scholars typically think that this tree of life reflects the divine presence itself. So when human beings are given permission to eat from the tree of life, it's a sense of the intimacy of communion that human beings are invited into. But tragically, this sense of union or communion is short-lived. The one command that human beings are given is to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but yet they do. And in doing so, a kind of narrative climax is introduced. What will happen? Will God continue to work with God's creatures or will God move on from them? But God promises instead to use God's creatures, humanity, to repair what's happened. Through human beings eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, death enters into reality. There's a kind of gap that opens up between how God intends creation to be and how it actually is. And Genesis chapter 3 talks about a seed of a woman that through humanity, one will come who will crush the head of death. So redemption is on the horizon. And as we read Genesis, we're kind of invited to think about who will be the seed of the woman? Will it be Abraham, whose name means father of nations? Will it be his son Isaac or maybe his son Jacob? But all of them fail in material ways. 
But Jacob is given a new name, just like Timothy was given the name Callistos. And Jacob's name is Israel. And through Israel, a hope is promised. So the second book of the Bible, Exodus, opens with Israel, God's people, in slavery. But God hears their cry. God promises a promised land, a land, another good land, another Eden overflowing with milk and honey. And just as God created human beings in the image of God and gave them the vocation to rule over creation, to fill it with blessing, so God leads humanity, God's people, Israel, to the foot of a mountain and says that they will be a nation of priests and a holy kingdom. Another vocation is given. But tragically, again, we see the way human beings are fragile and they fail at this. The first command given to this new people is that they shouldn't worship other gods. But at the foot of the mountain where this new covenant, this new relationship is created, the high priest of this nation, Aaron, leads the people in the creating of a golden calf. This is a second tragic moment. And there's a question as to, again, what will God do? Will God double down on God's people? Will God maintain God's faithfulness? And in response to this, God promises a whole new level of faithfulness, a whole new level of intimacy and sense of communion with the divine glory. Okay, so just third time that we see this pattern. Now, Israel, the people that God led out of Egypt, the people that God led out of slavery are now in the promised land. So again, they're in this place of delight and goodness. But then Israel get a little cocky. Rather than receiving a vocation, they say to God, oh, I know what we're going to do. And the king of Israel comes to God and says, I'm going to build you a house. And God replies with, no, no, no. I'm going to build you a house. The seed of the woman, of course, can mean two things. It can literally mean descendants, but it can also mean a new tree of life, the seed of a tree. So house here has a double meaning. God promises that God will build a temple for Israel, a place where God's presence literally dwells within creation. But God also promises a descendant, a descendant of Israel who, like the seed of the woman, will house the divine presence, the tree of life or the temple in a whole new way. And in order to fulfill this vocation, all that Israel need to do is maintain right worship. But tragically, later on in the story, we hear that a king of Israel hasn't set up one golden calf, but two. It's gone from worse to worse to worse. So again, we see the way that a question is asked over God's faithfulness. Now, tragedy ensues the way that Israel doesn't maintain a right relationship with God, and Israel are led into exile. Not only are Israel led out of the promised land, out of the land of delight, but the temple, God's house, is destroyed. And although Israel are led back into the promised land 70 years later, there's a sense in which things aren't quite right. When the first temple was built, there were beautiful narratives about God's presence coming to dwell in it. But there's no such narrative about the second temple. If we fast forward to to Jesus' time, there's a sense in which the exile is very much still in play. They would be under economic oppression. They're under a sense of social stigma as the Roman rulers would have military occupied them and subjugated them on a daily basis, engaging in daily acts of brutality and humiliation. 
on a spiritual level in the first century, if you were to go up to the temple, the place where God was meant to dwell, you would see on that very mount a Roman barracks overlooking the temple, the fortress Antonia. To be Jewish in the first century AD when Jesus was walking and breathing and teaching was very much to be reminded that Israel somehow still lived in exile. So the Jewish scriptures up until this point have been adamant that God is always faithful to God's people. But in the first century, you were looking around thinking, how is this going to come about? If we are still in exile, how does God save us? And the answer, as Matt Seymour always reminds us, is Jesus. When Jesus begins his ministry, he reads these verses. Jesus goes into a synagogue and he stands before the people and he reads these verses from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, your troubles are over. Divine faithfulness is here, and I am the answer to the end of exile. I am God's faithfulness. And what's more is he's saying that just as Israel was always meant to be a blessing to all nations, so this, this promise of exile, the promise of the making right of reality, isn't just going to come about for Israel, it's going to come about for all people. And in fact, if you read Luke chapter 4, it's this, the claim that it's going to be for all people which stirs up the crowd. When Jesus first comes in and he says, I am the anointed, I'm the seed of the woman, I'm the house of David, I'm the one who's going to make all things right. The crowd are kind of slapping each other on the back. They're saying like, this is amazing. This is what we've all waited for. But when he says, and this is going to be true for all nations, that's when they turn on him and try to murder him. And what we see in Jesus' ministry is a constant radical extension of hospitality to the lost. As St. Saviors over the last three weeks, over the last few weeks, sorry, we've been looking through the parables of Jesus. So Jesus starts saying that my radical sense of hospitality is going to be extended to all people. It is genuinely good news. And when you start saying this kind of thing, people start listening, especially people who desire hope, people who haven't heard good news. They start responding and they start getting excited. And Luke chapter 15 puts this as a problem. So crowds are forming around Jesus and Luke chapter 15 says this, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. There's a sense of a, a worry that is, is Jesus' radical extension of hospitality, is his sense of bringing all people to God. Is it too much? C- can we really handle that? And isn't it so basically human that the religious elites of the day get worried about this? And in response to this, Jesus tells three stories, all of which reveal the type of God that we see when we look at the face of God. The first is that, Jesus, sorry, that God is like an old woman looking for a coin. The second, that God is like a sh- shepherd looking for a lost sheep. And finally, and most famously, that God is like a father looking for a lost son. When God sees the lost son on the horizon, God doesn't just wait where he is. The father pelts it out the home and meets the son where he is, wraps his arms around the, the son and says, welcome. 
This is the type of welcome that we receive in the love of God. Luke chapter 19 sums up Jesus' message when, they, when, it, when Luke writes, for the Son of Man, which was Jesus' favorite title for himself, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is the heart of God. When we look at the face of God, this is what we see. And we see this in the baptismal liturgy that we read over Micah and Mason as well, which says, we all wander far from God and lose our way. Christ's come to find us and welcome us home. In baptism, we respond to his call. That's what we've been doing this morning. We've been giving thanks for the way that we are all welcome, and we've been remembering how we have all been invited to God once we've been lost. But the disciples would have known this. They were steeped in Jewish scriptures, and they understood, and they'd been following Jesus for many years. They understood the type of radical uh, sense of hospitality that Jesus was offering, and they were excited about it, right? They were followers of who Jesus was. I think the big thing they were struggling with was why did Jesus die? Right, because we're all in for this radical sense of hospitality, but why does Jesus die? And I think we get a hint of this in the breaking of bread. Verse 35 of the passage that we heard read out say that the disciples began to relate their experiences on the road and how Jesus was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. What does the breaking of the bread have to do with all this? Well, this isn't the first time that Jesus has broken bread in the story. The first happened the night that Jesus was betrayed, the day before he was killed, as Jesus had a meal, had a meal with those who he was closest to. And this wasn't just any type of meal, this was a Passover meal. Now, the Passover meal was a Jewish meal which happened at a very particular time. Remember, I told the story of the way that Israel are in slavery and they're led out of Egypt by God. The Passover meal was the meal that they had the night before this deliverance. It was a meal where they ate lamb. And they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts in which they lived. And this delivered them from this place into the promised land. When Jesus breaks bread at the Passover, Jesus is saying, I am the Passover lamb. I am the one who's going to lead you into a place of delight. I am the one who's going to give you a new vocation. I am the one who, no matter what you do with this vocation, will always pursue you and will always seek you. And what Jesus does is Jesus says that I will go even into death for you. One of my favorite writers, Simone Weil, says that God went the infinite distance from us because Jesus was the only one who could go that distance. This infinite distance is death. Jesus died for us to make sure that there was no possible distance that was too far from God for us so that we could always be invited back into the radical hospitality of God. So I'm just coming into close. And maybe the band could come back to the stage. So this brings us back to the question of when you look upon the face of God, what do you see? Now, I can't answer that question. We will all see something different. But what the Bible says, what those, I think what the types of stories that Jesus was telling on the road to Emmaus say, 
is that we see the face of the one who loves us, who deeply desires communion with us, who wants to lead us into places of delight and who invites us to vocation. And this vocation isn't just a static sense. Although there is nothing that we need to do, we are invited to play with God, to have some kind of role in the kingdom of God, to share in it. But that might not be what we see when we look at the face of God. On a good day, that's something that I see, but it's not always. And this is why I think that one of the reasons why the road to Emmaus story is so helpful, because it's a journey. It says that we're all on a journey, hopefully deep, more deeply, ever more deeply into the love of God, into the hope of God, into an invitation to vocation. And essentially, that isn't a journey which happens by ourselves. In the road to Emmaus, it happens with three people, the two disciples and Jesus. But it happens in this family, the family that Micah and Mason just joined and we all cheered over. You may not have been able to see it, but if you were around the font as Micah and Mason were baptized, right at the end, when we were all cheering, Micah just took Mason in his arms and hugged him so tight. It was such a special moment. That's what this is. The church, when it's at its best, are Micah and Mason's hug. As we hold one another through the bad times and the good. I'm going to finish up in just a moment, and then we're going to invite people forward to pray. And if you want to look at the face of God and see something more of the love of God, we would love to, as a community, pray for you. Maybe to hug you a little, just like Micah did Mason. And also, maybe you want to see yourself more like the way God sees you. That's something we'd also love to pray with you about. Let me just pray, and then I'll hand over to the band. God, we thank you for the love you continually show and shower upon us. We thank you that you are a God that delights in our delight, whose heart seeks to use us for your vocation, to fill the earth with blessing, and to give us an opportunity to share in that. Lord, we thank you how we're, that we're a community formed in baptism, invited to share in your love, and to walk with you as we hold one another arm in arm. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.